John chapter 6 is where we will be today. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 15, and in doing so, we, we took notice of how all of John chapter 6 is one fluid story. So from verse 1 to verse 76, or whatever the last verse is of that chapter, it's all one fluid story that's kind of centered around this idea of Jesus being the bread of life. But wedged in the middle of this story about bread is this truly remarkable and miraculous story about Jesus walking on water, about Jesus saving his disciples from a storm by walking on the water. Now, when you begin to look at it, really the placement of this story and how John communicates this story is really kind of peculiar. Uh, John spares us a lot of details that surround this story. So this story about Jesus walking on the water is also told in Matthew and Mark. And John kind of gives us the Cliff Notes versions of this story. And the way that he presents some of the information is kind of strange. It feels like John's pen was running out of ink, so he had to get the information down really quick before he ran out of ink and had to go get another pen. That's, it's kind of the feel. If you look down at verse 21, you'll, you'll see what I mean. He says this, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Period. End of story. That's it. That's all he tells us is now they've immediately made it to their desired destination. After this long, hard fought battle of trying to make it they immediately make it and that's the end of the story so John just throws that information out there for us with no apparent explanation and says all right that's that's all you need to know so it's as if the unordinary has now become ordinary for Jesus's disciples they're beginning to see and know who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish And so last week we looked at quite possibly the most popular miracle performed by Jesus. And so with likely 10 to 15,000 men, women, and children present, it's by far one of the largest crowds present at one of Jesus' miracles. Well, this week we're going to see one of the least attended miracles performed by Jesus during this time. His crowd goes from 10 to 15,000 to 12. Not 12,000, but 12,000. People, And so last week we recognized that this large crowd of people in last week's passage, it gave us a ton of supporting evidence to who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So there's not one single piece of historical evidence from this time of anyone speaking out against the accuracy or the validity of this story. So no single person in this crowd later on raised their hand and said, no, that's not actually what happened. Jesus called in a caterer from Denny's, and he actually didn't feed us all of this food through um, these five barley loaves. No one discredited the validity of this. Um, So this should give us all the more confidence in who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so the purpose of this gospel is that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might believe in him and have eternal life. And so who is Jesus? It's God in flesh. He is the Son of God. And what did he come to do? He came to give eternal life to those who believe in him. And so therefore, this story is yet another exclamation point to the statement that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. 
Now, really quick, before we dive into our passage, let's summarize what we learned last week. Let's hit the Cliff Notes versions of this. So last week, important information, we saw that it was around the time of Passover. And around the time of Passover, his disciples retreated across the Sea of Galilee. So they go to the the wilderness area. And a large crowd then followed Jesus because they had seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so Jesus eventually feeds this large crowd of about 10 to 15,000 men, women, and children with five loaves of barley bread and two fish. I say 10 to 15,000, and some of you may be thinking, if you weren't here last week, no, it was 5,000. So it says 5,000 men. Um, Other gospel writers and a lot of commentators agree that, um, that that's just the men present and that women and children would have been present as well. And we think that's true because of what John says in last week's passage that Andrew brings a boy um, in his food. So that tells us that there was uh, children present, and so we think that the crowd would have been much larger than 5,000. So 10 to 15 could have been more, could have been less. We don't know, but that, that's a healthy guesstimate to the number of people there. So everyone in this crowd ate until they're full, which is truly incredible. Then verse 13 tells us that the disciples filled up 12 baskets with crumbs from the five loaves of barley bread that the large crowd got full off of. So that doesn't logically make sense. How can you fill up 12 baskets with leftovers of five barley loaves of bread that 10,000 people ate and got full off of? This is truly miraculous what we see there. So this is a miraculous sign that led the crowd to wanting to crown Jesus as king. They saw him healing the sick, and now they're full from the food that he miraculously provided. And with this being the time of Passover, they were supposed to see the similarities between how God provided for Israel in the wilderness um, through Moses and how Jesus is now feeding themselves in the wilderness And so in seeing this, they now want to crown him as king. This is the prophet. This is the one that Moses has prophesied about. And so verse 15 tells us that Jesus um, withdraws himself from the crowd. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus avoids this crowning because he knows the purpose of his coming. He came not to establish a temporary earthly kingdom. He came to establish a heavenly, eternal kingdom. So the purpose of this miracle is to point ahead to the cross, where in the midst of hopelessness, he can present himself as the true bread of life. However, what we will see is that the people view Jesus as a means to physical blessing and physical prosperity, as a means to healthy bodies and full stomachs. But you cannot crown Jesus on your own terms, as we saw last week. The crowd thought that if they made him king, then they would be healed, that they would be fed, and that they would be happy. But Jesus is trying to show us that he did not come to simply establish Uh, or meet physical needs. He didn't come to establish a physical kingdom here on earth. He came to restore uh, a broken relationship between us and God through his life, death, and resurrection. And so therefore, he retreats from the crowd. Now, try to imagine what the disciples must have been feeling at this moment. 
They racked their brains over how they could feed this crowd. Philip says, we don't have enough money. We can't afford Denny's. We're hopeless. There's no way that we can feed these crowds. Andrew brings this little boy in his Lunchable and says, this is all we got. So there's no resources that we could provide for these people. There's no hope in feeding these people. Then Jesus miraculously takes that Lunchable and feeds everyone. And so to the point that everyone is full off of this. And now everyone wants to crown him as king. And so I would be willing to bet that these disciples are on cloud nine. Their master, the one that they've given their life to follow after, is now the one that everyone is wanting to crown as king. Incredible moment, I think, for these disciples. Well, now, as we continue to read, we will see this cloud nine moment for the disciples is quickly followed by a moment of dreadful calamity to which Jesus again will miraculously act on behalf of the hopeless. I think the progression between verses 1 through 15 and then verses 16 through 21 tells us that oftentimes the sweetest moments of life are quickly followed by trials. And so as one commentator so eloquently and morbidly put it, he said, after the sunshine of comfort, expect a storm. Right, I, uh, truly a uh, very depressing quote, but um, nonetheless, following the feeding of the crowd, this passage will take place at night inside of a boat, inside of a storm, on the Sea of Galilee with only the, the disciples. There's no more crowd. There's no more sunshine. There's no more land. There's no more laughter. Things have become difficult for the disciples. Let's begin to dive in. Let's look at these verses, verses 16 through 21. It says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So let's go back, look at verse 16 through 17. It says this, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So the disciples, they hop into a boat, and they head over to Capernaum. The first question that I asked myself as I'm reading through this earlier this week is, why did the disciples leave Jesus? Right? That's, that's strange. Why would they have left him? With the information that John gives us, this really seems like a jerk move, right? This master that everyone wants to crown as king that Jesus has retreated from, now they hop in the boat and they jump sail. They, they leave. Why would you leave Jesus here? Well, as I previously said, this uh, story is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark tell us the reason as to why they jump in the boat and leave. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So an important piece of information is this. The disciples are not abandoning Jesus here. They're not fleeing. They're not running. They're being obedient to Jesus here. The all-knowing, all-powerful Lord over all told them to get into the boat and head over to the other side without him. 
So that's an important detail for us, and we'll begin to see that as we work our way through it. Put that in your back pocket. So yes, the disciples are about to encounter a storm, but they're not going to encounter this storm because they're running from the Lord. So unlike Jonah, where Jonah um, is commanded to go to Nineveh, and he says, I'm out, and he jumps in a boat, a storm comes. That's not what we see here. Unlike Jonah, they're going to encounter the storm in a boat because they're being obedient to what the Lord has told them to do. That's a monumental truth for us to understand as Christians. The crowd thought that the crowning of Jesus as king would lead to their prosperity and to their blessing, to have healthy bodies and full stomachs. But now, two verses later, we're beginning to see the opposite come true. Submission to Jesus as king may lead to trials and difficulties. Not all trials are a result of disobedience. Some are, but not all are. Some trials that we encounter in life may be a result of obedience. And so obedience to Jesus is not always easy, but it will always be worth it. So in obedience, the disciples hop into the boat before dark during the evening time. They start across the sea to Capernaum. Capernaum is a word in Hebrew, and it's comprised of the word kafar, which means village, and nahum, which means comfort. So an interesting point that's hidden in the background uh, here is the disciples have now left the wilderness to the village of comfort. And again, that's another important detail that we need to put in our back pockets that will be helpful for us as we journey through this. I think the point that we're going to see today is that Jesus is our only hope in finding comfort. You can spend your life exhausting your efforts, chasing after comfort, but you'll never find it apart from Jesus. Put that in your back pocket. We'll come to it later. The distance that they're traveling, the disciples are traveling here, is not a very far distance. And some disciples are very experienced fishermen, so this wouldn't have been a difficult journey for them. Um, Luke tells us that they were in Bethsaida, And verse 16 tells us that they're heading to Capernaum. So these two areas were pretty close in distance. There should be a picture. Is there a picture on the screen right now? So yeah, it's only this far. So it's not that far, right? Um, They're they're really close on uh, the shore. Just that far. Um, Not very far. So this would not have been a difficult journey for the disciples to make. It shouldn't have been a hard journey. However, things quickly change whenever the sun sets. When night comes, a storm rolls in. John tells us, bless you, that in the latter, John tells us, bless you. Um, No, John tells us in the latter part of verse 17 that it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Nearly every commentator that I read pointed out the, the location of this uh, sea and then the surrounding uh, land. Uh, the, the Sea of Galilee is located about 700 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by many hills and mountains. And so they would say that the, whenever the cold air from the top of these mountains would come rushing down and meet that warm air above the water, that randomly these big storms would kick up. And so the disciples surprisingly didn't have the weather channel during this time. They didn't have a seven-day forecast. Um, Maybe they did, and it would be just as reliable as ours now. Um, 
but they didn't see the storm on the radar. They, they didn't think, a storm's coming, we can make it quick. So they, they had no idea of this storm coming. John tells us that the sea became rough, meaning they set sail and it was not rough, but now that they've begun to row, the winds have kicked up, the waves have begun to crash against them, and, night, and at nighttime their journey has become difficult. So let's, let's begin to, to kind of wrap our mind around this setting here. Nighttime's creepy, right? Just ask my kids. If you want them to get out of a room quick, turn the lights off. They'll beat Hussein Bolt out of that door. I'm telling you, I promise you. So nighttime is creepy. And so are storms, right? Storms are creepy. But do you know what? Storms at night aren't just creepy, they're scary, right? But you know what's even scarier than storms at night? Storms at night while being in a small boat on a sea, right? Like that, that would be the, the pinnacle of scariness. So I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Three things came to my mind as I'm beginning to wrap my mind around this. First is that storms in the water are creepy. So yesterday I went surfing. And literally, as soon as we got in the water, this storm came. We saw the storm, and we're like, I think we'll be all right. And so the wind starts blowing really hard. The rain is falling down. And the way the wind is blowing, it's blowing in your face as you're looking out at the waves. And so you're trying to paddle out. You're trying to see the waves. And the wind is literally blowing the, the rain so hard that it would hurt your face. So you're literally sitting like this, just getting crashed by waves. So this is a a daunting, pretty terrifying, not terrifying, but it was a a scary, daunting moment for us. Second thing I noticed is that open bodies of water at night are spooky, right? I'm all about swimming, let's go swimming, but I ain't going to get in the water at night. Like an open body of water is a no-no for me. If I'm going to get bit by a shark, I want to at least see it coming, right? Like I'm I'm not, open water at night is, is scary. But storms also, a third thing I noticed is storms at night are scary. So growing up in Pensacola, two hurricanes that I remember the most would be Hurricane Ivan and Hurricane Dennis. Both came around the same time, uh, about a year apart. Hurricane Dennis came during the daytime, allowing you to see the wind blowing and see the damage that was taking place. Hurricane Ivan came at nighttime. So all you could do is hear the wind and hear the damage. And surprisingly, Hurricane Ivan was a lot scarier. There's something about uh, not being able to see the damage that's taking place in the midst of a storm that um, heightens this eeriness. So you begin to understand the context of what's going on. Do not overlook the picture that John is painting here. He wants us to feel the weight of what's transpiring here on the sea. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to him. He's nowhere to be found. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So it's dark. The one who possesses the power over the wind and the waves is nowhere to be found. The boat is being thrashed around. The wind is howling. They're beginning to be beaten by the waves. The wind is against them. So every stroke that they take towards Capernaum, they take two feet. They go two feet in the opposite direction. This is a difficult moment for the disciples. Things are not going well for them. Then, in verse 19, we see that when they rode about three or four miles, 
They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they've been rowing for three or four miles, which means that they've been rowing for quite some time. Mark tells us that Jesus appeared to them around the fourth watch of the night, which would have been anywhere from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so I did some research, right? I did some math in my head or on paper this week. Um, If this story took place during Passover, which we know it would have been, the sun would have likely been setting around 7 p.m. I almost said a.m. 7 p.m. And so it would have been dark somewhere around 8.30 So for argument's sake, let's say that they just started rowing at 8.30 p.m. Let's just start counting their rowing hours at 8.30. And let's say that Jesus appeared at 3 a.m., so the the shortest amount of time. At the very least, they would have been rowing for six and a half hours that night. They would have been rowing against the wind in the storm for six and a half hours. That's a long time. That's a difficult journey. And so it's safe to say that the disciples are exhausted at this point. It's safe to say that they would have been frustrated, that they would have been scared. This would have not been a fun encounter for the disciples. Joy and comfort would have been far from them. And now, after at least six and a half hours of rowing, they see Jesus walking on the sea toward them. Now, some skeptics would try to explain away the miracle that's taking place here. Some commentators say that the wording used in the Greek for on the sea can also be mean by the sea. And so what they try to say is that they think the disciples traveled about three or four miles just up the coast, hugging the coast. And so rather than Jesus walking out to them on the water, Jesus is walking by them on the shore. Um, And so... I have a hard time, hard enough time with understanding English. I made a D in high school, so I'm not an expert in Greek. But from what I could tell from the guys who are a lot smarter than I am in this language, there's several examples of John using that phrase on or by to communicate different points. So trying to explain away this miracle with such a loose grammatical point, I don't think is wise and I don't think it's fair. It's not a sustainable argument. And this is why. When you begin to look at the context of this passage, there's several points that validate Jesus walking out on the water. The first would be the disciples are afraid when they saw him. Right? So you have some fishermen who are on the boat. So Matthew and Mark tell us that they thought that they saw a ghost. And some of these guys, again, are experienced fishermen. So if they're close to shore, if they're hugging the shore, and Jesus is simply walking by them on the shore, it it would be illogical for them to be afraid at this point. Why would you be afraid of somebody walking by you on the shore? And the second point, which is more convincing in my mind, is that Matthew and Mark tell us that the boat was out on the sea and far from land. So Mark tells us in chapter 6, verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. Matthew 14, 23 through 24 says, When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus could not enter into a boat that was a long way away from land by simply walking by the shore. 
So if you're ever having a conversation with someone and they say, no, Jesus didn't actually walk on water, you can begin to point them to these proofs and say, no, actually he did. It's not a sustainable argument to, to go to the grammar and say, well, it could mean that he walked by it. No, he walked on it. There's uh, plenty of evidence to point to that. So there's no reason to question the reliability of the miracle taking place here. Where they had a short distance to travel, it's likely that the wind had pushed them far from their desired location. The boat is a long way from land, and Jesus walks on water to get to them. Now, think back to what is culturally taking place during this time. What does verse 4 tell us? Um, Somebody look in their Bibles to verse 4. What is at hand? Passover, very good. Yeah, so Passover is at hand. And because of that, I think in the background of this passage, we should begin to see glimpses of this Exodus narrative of God setting his people free from slavery in Egypt, leading them into the promised land. In Exodus 13, we see God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. So God leads them toward the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, we see the Egyptians decided to pursue after Israel. And when the Egyptians got close, Israel feared greatly. So this is a scary encounter for Israel. And Moses then says to Israel, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so Moses then stretches his hands. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong wind, made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Israel walks through on dry land, makes it to the other side, and then the water comes crashing down on the Egyptians. God saves his people miraculously from danger. Well, now, in the same way, we see the Lord, Jesus, lead his disciples toward the boat, into the boat, into the water into danger and now the disciples are in the face of danger themselves and they're terrified they fear greatly and there's nothing that israel could have done to cross the sea and reach the promised land on their own as we see in exodus and despite their valiant efforts of the disciples there's nothing that they could do to make it to the other side so we're beginning to see this parallel and it's in the face of both of these hopeless situations that the lord comforts the people by saying fear not It's in the face of both of these situations that the Lord acts on their behalf. In both situations, God is not distant. In both situations, God comes to them and acts on their behalf. And in both situations, God enters into a hopelessly dark situation, exercises authority over the waters, and then miraculously saves his people. Jesus is the Lord over all. God in flesh, our only hope for salvation. We must always remember that truth. Look at verse 20. Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what's interesting here is that all of the gospel writers point out the object of their fear at this point. And it's not the wind. It's not the waves. It's Jesus. They're now not afraid of the storm, but they're afraid of the maker of the storm, the one who is coming to them. The disciples realize they're in the presence of someone far greater than the storm, and they're terrified. And they should be. 
This is Almighty God, the one who possesses the power over, um, the one who possesses the power to steer the waves by simply his words. He is coming to them, and the disciples are terrified. However, what's truly remarkable here is that Jesus came not to destroy them, but to save them. He enters into darkness, he enters into hopelessness, and he says, It is I. Do not be afraid. And so in the face of danger, the identification of Jesus comforts their greatest fears. It's in Christ's presence alone that we have sufficient grounds for confidence. And so look how the disciples respond. They then were glad to take him into the boat. And so let me first say that the disciples could have easily blamed Jesus here, right? They could have shaken their fist at him. I think we see that type of response all too often in our culture and unfortunately probably in the church as well. They could have easily shook their fists at Jesus and said, you're the one who told us to get into the boat. Where have you been? You have been safe on shore praying while we for six and a half hours have been trying to get to the other side rowing. We're exhausted, we're tired, and this is your fault. They could have easily done that. Blaming God for the trials that we encounter is the often popular route to take in the face of difficulty. It's easy to shake your fist at God and blame him for the difficulties you encounter in life rather than invite him into the boat. But let me tell you, God is not ignorant of struggle or ignorant to struggle. And so I'm not going to stand up here and try to reconcile why a good God allows evil in the world. But I would like to say that we should be thankful that he does because if he didn't, there would be no you and I. There is no one good, not even one. So a right response should be to a right response to God should be fear. But praise God that he's merciful and slow to anger. And praise God that he's compassionate. And praise God that he loves us enough to enter into this world of hopeless despair. And praise God that he suffered for us on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And praise God that he rose from the grave, defeating the vicious sea of sin and death so that we might experience eternal life through him. And so church, listen, the gospel tells us that he knows pain. He felt it himself. And so one of the major emphasis of, for John here in the presence of this storm is Jesus's presence. John, unlike the other gospels, doesn't mention the stilling of the storm or how Jesus did it. Rather, John stresses the importance of Jesus entering in the storm and being with his disciples in the midst of it. So we must understand that comfort will not come from our own efforts. As we go through trials in this life, it is only Jesus that can bring us to Capernaum, the land of comfort. So may we, like the disciples, be glad to invite him into the boat. As you go through trials in this life, what you need more than anything is Jesus. Lean on him. Run to him. Invite him into the boat. Ice cream ain't going to comfort you. Alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, work, hobbies, family, whatever it is that we would try to um, bring comfort or pursue after in order to bring us comfort, none of these things can offer us true comfort. However, in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of despair, 
The presence of Jesus erased the fear of the disciples and led to gladness. This is one of the most beautiful truths in Scripture that we see. The gospel exchanges fear, exhaustion, hopelessness, and despair with gladness, joy, comfort, and hope. And that's why James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we let steadfastness have its full effect that we may become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And so as Christians, we know that trials are used for our good. And we know that nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we rejoice in and cling to him in all situations. So although the wind may be howling all around us, we are to joyfully invite Jesus into the boat. The joy is found in the midst of trials in knowing that Jesus is with you. So our joy and our happiness does not hinge on our circumstances. It hinges on whether or not Jesus is with us in those circumstances. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, that no storm can separate us from Jesus. Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are, all, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, church, be sure of this. The one who possesses the power to calm the storm walks with us in the storm. And no storm in this life possesses the power to separate us from him. This miracle shows us that Jesus will never leave his people under any circumstance. And this passage ends with one of the craziest, most subtle statements I have ever read. Paul, or Paul, John says this, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Surprisingly, immediately means immediately, right? So they were unable to reach their destination until Jesus enters into the boat. And then they miraculously make it to shore, period, end of story. John drops the mic and moves on. This week... Jesus miraculously leads his people into the land of comfort where they exhaust their efforts. God brings them to their haven. You see so many similarities between this story and Psalm 107. So I want to close tonight by reading tonight, this morning, by reading through Psalm 107. So if you have in your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 107. Uh, There's a ton of similarities between this psalm and what we've seen today. And so I would strongly encourage you this week to to read through, meditate on this psalm, uh, in community groups, discuss it. There's so much richness in this passage. I think it communicates to us the helplessness of humanity and the hopefulness of the gospel. It says this. I'm not sure what verse it starts in, but it starts with, Some went down to the sea in ships. What is it? 23. 23. 
Um, so look down to verse 23. It says this, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy winds, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So do not be mistaken. Jesus is the Lord over all. The one who possesses both the power to raise the winds and still the winds. Raise the waves and still the waves. He is the one that we can cry out to in our distress. And he is the one who can and will save us when we do so. If you are in here today and that first half of the psalm describes your life, I would invite you to come to Jesus. It is Jesus alone who can give us eternal life, who can bring us to our desired haven, who can bring us to harbor, not harbor community, right? But to our desired harbor. We know this is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I would like for us to conclude this morning in the same way that Psalm 107 concludes, and that is by giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love in Christ Jesus through the ordinance of communion. So as Caleb and Sophie come up, or just Caleb comes up, let me say this, church, the avenue to which God chose to bring himself glory was through the suffering of his son Jesus. God in flesh, Jesus Christ, entered into hopelessness and lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we should have died. And he, three days later, rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, providing us with hope. If we believe in him, we may have eternal life. That is hope. So where we were once dead in our sins, where we were once enemies to God, alienated from him, where we were at our wits end, as the psalmist says, we are now by grace through faith, sons and daughters of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so in the same way that Passover, the Passover meal was to be a reminder of God's salvific power to Israel, communion, is to be a time where we, as the body of Christ, remember God's salvific power in Christ Jesus, the Passover lamb. And so if you are not yet a believer, I would ask that you refrain from taking part in communion until you have come to faith in Jesus. And today can be the day that you do. Today can be the day that you believe in him and give him your life. And so that invitation is here for you today. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. And if you do so, whenever you do become a believer, now I would invite you to come and joyfully take part with the body of Christ. But as the church, as we bow in reverence, respect, and awe of Christ, may we give him the glory that he rightfully deserves. 
And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So church, I'm going to pray. And then when you feel led, go take part in communion. The elements are over here. Uh, We have a limited supply of um, unfermented wine. So if you would come in families, uh, and you can drink from the cup together as a family. But yeah, whenever you feel led, come and take part in the elements. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, we are immersed in hopelessness. God, apart from you, we would constantly be rowing, trying to obtain eternal life. Hopeless, exhausted, but you entered into our hopelessness. And through us inviting you in, you lead us to our desired haven. And so, God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, I pray for the men and women in here today who are going through trials, who have been led into the storm and who have waves crashing all around them, feeling as if they're immersed in hopelessness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you comfort them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you encourage them. God, give them joy in the midst of trials. God, I pray for us as a church that we will be a people who joyfully exalt you in everything that we do, no matter the circumstances. Whether that be in good times or bad, you are still worthy. And so we want to extol you. We want to lift you up. So it's through your son's name that we pray. Amen.